Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. I'm Ben Jackson, in for Alyssa Milano, who's at Paris Comic-Con this week. The gun violence epidemic in America continues unabated. More than 45,000 people in this country die every year from gunshot wounds. About three times as many are shot and survive. Fred Guttenberg knows this all too well. His daughter Jamie was one of the students killed in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018. We've invited him back on the show to discuss the current state of gun violence and efforts to prevent it. Law enforcement officials say the shooter is a white male in his 20s who is motivated by hate. All three victims in this shooting were black. Do not, for the love of God, tell kids that slavery was beneficial because I can guarantee you it most certainly was not. A University of North Carolina graduate student has been charged with murder in the deadly shooting of a faculty member on campus. President Biden is now proposing a major plan for gun reform that could close the gun show loophole. I'm Fred Guttenberg. I'm the father of Jesse and Jamie Guttenberg who were in the Parkland school shooting. Unfortunately, my daughter Jamie did not come home that day, and because of that, I have spent the past five plus years fighting to reduce gun violence, and I've been doing so along with many great people like Alyssa Milano and Ben Jackson. We're going to fight every day to reduce gun violence, and whether you're with us or not, and I hope you are, sorry, not sorry. Fred, welcome back to Sorry Not Sorry. You've just done this a little bit in your introduction, but remind our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you've been doing since the shooting in Parkland. Ben, I'm a dad. You've met my family that as it exists today, meaning my wife, Jennifer, and my son, Jesse. But there's also my daughter, Jamie, who you've never met, but you've heard about. And you've never met her because my two children on February 14th, 2018, went to school to learn safely. And a shooter who never should have had his hands on an AR-15 walked into that school, killing 17, of which my daughter was one, and wounding 17. Since that day, I've honestly continued being nothing but a dad, fighting to do something about everything that affects my kids. And in this case, it's gun violence. Since my daughter's murder, I've written two books dealing with my story. One was Find the Helpers, and the other one called American Carnage, taking on the lies and the myths that fueled the gun violence that put us in the place where we are today. I've challenged political leaders across this country, as well as in the White House. I have 
been unfortunately detained because of an event at the former guy's State of the Union. But I've done it all with one mission and one hope, to stop the next shooting. That's all I want to do. And so that has been my life the past five plus years. And I'm just truly thankful when you and others engage me to talk about it. Because the more we talk about this, I think the better chance we have of turning people out to vote to do something about it. And that's really the thing, right? Is that we can yell at people all we want, the political leaders. We've met personally, you and I, with Alyssa, with Ted Cruz. We've all met with a bunch of other political leaders over the time. And of course, they don't listen to us individually if they don't want to, because they don't have to. And so it is that work of voting. But you mentioned getting into it with political leaders. And earlier this week, I was going through my Facebook memories, and there you popped up with your hand out, ready to shake Brett Kavanaugh's hand. And that day, he ran away from you, right? He was during his confirmation hearing, and he got up and he ran away from you. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit what Kavanaugh and the other Trump appointees to the court have meant for the fight against gun violence in this country. It is such an important question, because when we think of The very first time I met you was at the NRA convention in April of 2018 in Dallas. And I've spent the past five plus years working with some great people to weaken and destroy the NRA. And politically, I think we've been very effective. Politically, they are not the same entity that they were. However, strategically, they've changed. They put their focus on litigation and on filing lawsuits. You look at across this country, they're filing lawsuits against new laws that they don't like. For example, after the Parkland shooting, we raised the age to 21, and they're suing over that. It will eventually go to the Supreme Court. But they're also filing lawsuits against old laws that they don't like. People think back to the Second Amendment case last year with the Bruin case. That was a 100 plus year old law that the NRA sued to overturn. Because as a country, we always passed gun safety legislation. The NRA wants to undo who we always were as a country. Here's why their effort to file all these lawsuits matters. While they were flooding the courts with these lawsuits, they were investing a lot of money in getting certain people on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh was one of them. And you may recall back then, every time I went to a public event, I refused to sit. I didn't want people to feel comfortable around me. And I was at the Kavanaugh hearing. I was a guest of Senator Dianne Feinstein, a minority leader on that committee. And he knew who I was because when she introduced me, I was there alone standing. When we went up for lunch, I was talking to Senator Blumenthal, and that kind of semicircle where the senator sit. And I was saying goodbye to Senator Blumenthal. I turned around, and Kavanaugh was standing right behind me. And I looked at him. I extended my hand, and he looked at me. He didn't run away right away. And I said, hi, my name is Fred Guttenberg. And he's standing there still. My daughter, Jamie, was murdered in the Parkland shooting. At that time, Don McGahn, who worked in the White House, and a security guy jumped out of their seats, Kavanaugh turned around, and they all made a beeline out of it. 
And speaking of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearing, something um, astonishing happened as they prepared to break for lunch during yesterday's hearing. I want to bring the photo up on your screen. Uh, there is video, but I want to show the video, uh, the, the photo first, because the photo alone, look at this. You can see the caliber of person that Brett Kavanaugh is, or rather isn't in this case. I mean, just look at the smug condescension uh, in his eyes as this man uh, approaches him to shake his hand. They didn't want to have to face the father of somebody from the Parkland shooting. Kavanaugh's positions on guns were not a secret. They were known. And at that hearing, he made a real case or a real point to highlight his young daughters that were in the hearing room that day and how proud of him he was, as he should be. And those young kids are going to go to school. I just wanted to shake his hand, tell him who I was, and tell him, should you ever have a chance to hear a Second Amendment case that you think of my daughter and you think of your daughters who are not that far off in age? I never got the chance to just say those simple words to him. It's all I wanted to say. I knew I wouldn't have a chance to say more than that. But the Supreme Court, we now have multiple Kavanaugh's on it. And we have a case about whether or not you can keep guns from domestic abusers. That's going to roll up to the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. We have a case on the age. And I have every reason to fear that this Supreme Court will thoroughly expand the rights even to violent people like a domestic abuser or to young kids who intend harm because of people like Brett Kavanaugh. Elections have consequences. Every single human being in America in this election in 2024 better vote because the reality is if we love our freedoms and we love our safety, the Supreme Court can't go any further out of control, and we need a chance to place some more people on it. Yeah, it scares me a little bit. You mentioned the domestic violence case. And this is something I don't think people realize about gun laws in this country is that somebody can be charged with domestic violence, right? You can be charged with a domestic violence crime. That does not take away your right to have guns and that people can apply for a domestic violence restraining order. And that initially does not take away somebody's right to have guns. It has to be a permanent domestic violence restraining order in order for that person to lose the right to carry. And what will happen very often is those abusers who've committed that crime will plead down to a lesser crime, a misdemeanor that is not domestic violence. It's the exact same violence. It's the exact same thing. It's just a different plea. And they retain their right to have guns, right? And I always think about a particular case in Florida, and it seems like Florida comes around a lot in this debate. But there was a just pinned, a just promoted Navy chief petty officer named Andrea Washington. She had been her entire career in the Navy. And her fiance had abused her, threatened her with a gun. And she went to get a domestic violence restraining order. And it took weeks 
for that hearing to come. And the day of the hearing, she was murdered by her abuser. And this is what the NRA wants to happen. These are the people they want to arm. These are the people they want to protect. And I think that our country needed Chief Petty Officer Andrea Washington of Florida more than her abuser needed his gun. Listen, the NRA, I hate to say it, but gun violence is actually good for gun business. The more violent people you have armed committing acts of violence, the more they can then turn around and say, we need to arm more people to stop those people. So rather than doing the things you know will stop those people, they want to keep them armed, but they want to divide this country into this notion of we're all bad people or good people. That's all we are. And because those bad people have their guns, even though they have their guns, because we made it possible, not impossible, because we made it possible, we now need to convince you that you better run out and buy a gun also. And I think this whole conversation on domestic abusers is such a clarifying point about this. There is no rationale for somebody who commits acts of violence, who has demonstrated they are willing to be violent, to be able to get access to a gun. And in fact, it would be pretty simple and easy for us to take steps. It wouldn't make it impossible, but it would certainly make it a hell of a lot harder to give them that access. But the NRA would rather have it. They have their gun. And then the person who may feel threatened runs out and buys a gun also. And access to a gun is a predictor of gun violence, right? That it is, in fact, a cause of gun violence. That if somebody does not have access to the gun, they are not going to just go out and borrow a gun, right? <laughs> and bring it. The gun in the house is the thing that allows it to happen. It makes me crazy because it should be really easy. And the other part of this is that when we do, in fact, do the right thing and finally get to the point where we've taken away somebody's right to have a gun because of their behaviors, there's no enforcement mechanism in most states to allow law enforcement to go in and collect the guns. It's an honor system. They have to say, oh, no, I don't have my gun anymore. And we have to trust them. And of course that doesn't happen. That is true. And certain states, because the red flag laws are certainly dependent upon the quality of the law passed in a specific state. I wish they were national and I wish they were strong, but it's dependent on the quality of the law passed in the state. Let's show you where we have red flag laws. There are 19 states in the District of Columbia that have red flag laws that are designed to prevent people at risk of harming themselves or others from obtaining guns. It's a bipartisan policy with states like Florida having support from Republican and Democratic lawmakers. Here's what they do. Essentially, they allow immediate family members of, or members of law enforcement to petition a court to temporarily prohibit somebody from obtaining a firearm who might be at risk of danger for themselves or other people. So Florida has what I would consider, believe it or not, equality red flag law passed after the Parkland murder. It was one of the things that we got passed. It has been used close to 10,000 times. And amazingly, the biggest users of it are the most conservative sheriffs in this state. So the thing about it is there's a really strong due process component with it. So the idea, if somebody doesn't get their guns back, there's a reason. People who 
may have been accused of something, there's a due process component to make sure their guns are not removed or not removed beyond a period of time. So it is infuriating because, listen, people like you and me, we're not trying to take away anyone's rights. We're trying to ensure that every single person has their rights maintained who wants to just go to a shopping mall, go to class to learn safely, go to a movie theater, go to a place of worship and not get shot and killed, okay? Or they want to be in their home, okay, where they're supposed to be comfortable and not be at risk that somebody who has threatened them violently previously can get the weapon to actually do something violent. Solving gun violence in this country, I look at it a lot like now controlling traffic. You can't stop all your traffic accidents but you can stop a whole lot of them because you do really smart things to control the traffic. There's too many guns in America now. When Jamie was born 20 years ago, we had only 200 million. That's a lot. 20 years later, we're over 400 million plus ghost guns. When Jamie was born 20 years ago, AR-15 sales were less than 2% of all guns sold. Today, they're 25%. This gun violence problem that you and I spend every day trying to do something about it. it hasn't always been our norm. The idea that domestic abusers should be armed is not something that America always thought. It's something that is a more recent thing that the lobby fights for, but we don't have to be okay with it. So we we're talking about Florida, and after you, you did mention the red flag laws, which was a positive step that Florida took. So after the Stoneman Douglas shooting. Certainly your governor, Ron DeSantis, took a lot of steps to protect people from gun violence in that state, right? What's Ron DeSantis done to protect people since then? So at the time, he wasn't governor. Rick Scott was. And Ron DeSantis was actually a congressman at the time. Rick Scott was governor. He's now a senator. And a lot of Republicans actually voted for that law. Every single one of them that voted for it has either been reelected or moved on to higher office. So the idea that politically they would be punished was nonsense. What infuriates me with Rick Scott, who I got to know really well, who was at Jamie's funeral, who was a true leader on passing this. Since his campaign for Senate, he wants people to forget that he was ever involved in it. It doesn't fit the MAGA narrative, but he was, and he did. And it was a good thing that he did because it has saved lives. DeSantis, since becoming governor, has tried to weaken what we did, has passed laws that make it more likely that gun violence will happen, permitless carry, for example, lowering the penalty for anyone caught on school grounds with a gun from a felony to a misdemeanor. He's taken every step he could to arm more people. Don't worry about the effects of that, but to arm more people while inciting people to hate and commit acts of violence as we just saw in Jacksonville. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, is that we do see this. We see the really malicious use of hate. And I always say about Ron DeSantis, he's not saying the things that he says because he's a racist. He is a racist, but he's not saying slavery had good things about it because he's a racist. He's saying it because he believes voters are racist and that it will help him win elections. He may well be right about that because those voters in the Republican Party who are horrified by it, have left that party. 
But and then we have this shooting that just happened in Jacksonville. We've seen this happen. This happened in Buffalo. We've seen it happen in Texas. We've seen it happen across the country where places where there is rhetoric that incites racial hatred. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office released disturbing photos of the guns the shooter used, a handgun and an AR-style rifle with swastikas on it. The latest federal statistics show reported hate crimes on the rise. Racism against Black people accounts for half of all racially motivated hate crimes. Saturday's shooting was the latest in a series of racist attacks. Last year, a gunman targeting Black people left 10 dead at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. In 2021, a shooter killed eight people, including six Asian American women in Atlanta. In places often where there's almost no law restricting access to guns, ends up with shootings like this. It's really clear the link between the two of them. What do you think is going to happen as we see more of the DeSantis-Trump model of politicians running in these places? When it happened in Buffalo, Kathy Hochul strongly condemned the hate and the rhetoric, but also the gun law and the lack of enforcement that caused it to happen. And immediately worked to and successfully passed laws that would make it far harder for anybody like that to do it again in New York. Versus DeSantis, who went ahead and continued with his dumb rhetoric, refused to talk about the gun, refused to talk about the access to the gun by somebody who had a hateful ideology, and just said, I forget his exact words, but this scumbag, I think was the word he used, you know, we won't allow them in our state. Come on. It was pure nonsense, which is what DeSantis is. He uses rhetoric to talk to his base without any policy to do anything for the actual people who have to live in the state. And I will tell you, voters in Florida are catching on. I think if Ron DeSantis were to run for re-election right now as governor, he couldn't win. Okay? He's not popular. He was successful in the last campaign because he got his base to turn out. And Democrats sat home. And now people in Florida are saying, what the hell did we vote for? So listen, people like Ron DeSantis exist. People like Donald Trump exist. People like Marjorie Taylor exist. And they've all managed to get themselves elected and to talk in such a hateful, horrific way. I will just say this. I don't want to give them any more oxygen. I'd rather talk about every single person who is doing something different than they are and about those who are running against them. And more importantly, I want to talk to every single voting American and let them know it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to be okay with it. You can vote and you better vote. And you don't have to fall in love with a politician to vote for them. You don't have to be completely inspired by a politician to vote for them. But if you know they want to do something to reduce gun violence, if you know they don't have a hateful ideology, if you know they support choice, if you know they're pro-democracy, if you know they want to enhance voting rights, if you know they want to do something about the environment, you don't have to be in love, but you damn well better vote for them. I don't get the idea that we need to feel like we want to have a beer with our politicians, right? Like, most likely we're never going to meet them. I would love to have a beer with you. I don't really want to have a beer with the people I vote for. I want them to be smarter than me. I want them to be smarter than me. I want them to be better people 
than me. And that should be the standard we're looking for, right? Not the, can I hang out with them? Because you're not going to hang out with them. Almost nobody's going to hang out with them, right? Problem is, and I think about Charlie Crist, who was an uninspiring candidate, and people were dulled into inaction by him. I get it. But because they didn't show up and vote, you got this version of DeSantis. It's not that Florida loved DeSantis. It's that the majority of Florida sent home and didn't vote. Man, I would have loved to have seen Nikki Freed as the nominee there. Like, how, what a different race that would have been. Nikki's a friend of mine, and I've spoken to Nikki about this a lot. Maybe she would have won. Maybe she wouldn't have won. She would have turned out more voters. You wouldn't have the supermajority. And she would have been punching DeSantis in the face every single day. He would have had no presidential campaign to run for when she got done. I wish the party would have selected her. This is where, unfortunately, the base of parties sometimes choose the wrong people because you just don't get the majority of Democrats voting in primaries. And they sure didn't show up in the general. If you hate what you got, show up and vote. Recently, just a a week or two ago, we saw a shooting in North Carolina at a school where a student came in and shot a faculty member. Tonight, an alarming, if too familiar, scene. A college campus on lockdown after a deadly shooting. Possible active shoot on campus. This time at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. I'm grieved to report that one of our faculty members uh, was killed in this shooting. This loss is devastating, and uh, the shooting damages the trust and safety that we so often take for granted uh, in our campus community. I am a faculty member at a large state university in a state that has campus carry. And we were talking before we started recording that over the next few days, I have about 135 essays to grade. Some of those grades are not going to be great. And I worry with every single grade that I give that I have to think about this now. What do we need to do to protect students, educators, places like schools from gun violence? What needs to change to keep us safe? I was actually talking to Jed, my wife, about this the other day, because about 15, 20 years ago in Parkland, Florida, there was a student who was unhappy with the grades he was getting. And this student, by the way, just so you know, is now a physician in South Florida, but he had a meltdown and he stabbed a teacher. The good thing for him, he's now a physician, is the teacher didn't die because he used a knife, not a gun. And that is, to me, such a huge difference in the threat analysis that must run through your mind now, first 15, 20 years ago for a teacher, because now you have to assume they're going to have a gun. I've said this throughout this podcast, Ben, it wasn't always this way. But now you have to assume they may have a gun. And going back to the North Carolina shooting last week, it wasn't just an event that affected the student and the faculty member that he shot. It affected the entire campus. You had kids climbing out of windows for safety because they didn't know what was going on with the shooter. What if one of those kids fell, okay, and injured themselves? This whole access to guns to anyone has caused this. It wasn't always this way. And so I want to talk about something else that happened last week, because I think it ties to this. And it is the commitment of our president to continue trying 
to combat this. And the rule change that they're trying to do with regards to who's subject to doing background checks by being clear who actually is a retailer of guns for profit. We are not capturing through background checks people who should not have weapons because unfortunately there's too many ways for them to buy their weapons that don't require a background check, but yet the seller is doing it for profit. One way is online sales, and the other way is these gun shows. And when you go back 30 years ago to when the Brady background check bill was passed, there was no such thing as an internet. Maybe it was just in its infancy. I I don't remember. It's 30 years ago. And you sure as hell weren't thinking about online sales of guns. But online is now this massive industry of gun sales where no background check is required. President Biden seeks to end that loophole. Gun shows. 30 years ago, when Brady background check was passed, you didn't have these mass industry-driven gun shows, okay? But you do now. And in these gun shows, there's no background checks happening. Think about a student that you have that doesn't get a grade and they want a weapon and they don't want to have to go through a background check. Maybe they're underage. Maybe something in their background. It ain't hard to get the weapon. So these gun shows go on all over the place now. No background checks required. And at the end of these gun shows, you have inventory left that they want to clear out. So they start discounting it all. And who do you think's hanging around at the end to buy all the stuff really cheaply that's left over? It's not the sport hunter. It's not the somebody who is looking to buy a high quality weapon to have around for home protection, right? It is somebody else. So one of the most important things that we can do as a country to start, you're not going to stop gun violence, but to start mitigating and bending the curve is to close those massive loopholes who's having a background check and to make sure we hold retailers who are selling for profit online or at these gun shows accountable the way we hold gun store owners accountable. I am so proud of our president for pursuing this. It's going to make a big deal for the next 90 days. In the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act last year, we did make a pretty important change. Um, We made it clear that anybody that's in the business of selling guns, even if it's a part-time business, has to be licensed and has to perform background checks. And so the Biden administration announced uh, just this week that they are going to be implementing that section of the bill. And it is likely going to result in literally tens of thousands of guns that right now are sold without background checks having background checks applied. And that means there's going to be a lot fewer criminals, a lot fewer people with mental illness who are going to be able to find loopholes around the background check law to get their hands on a firearm. We go through a period of comment where anybody and anyone can comment on their rule and their thoughts on it. And I hope every single person who wants to see this rule passed reaches out to the Department of Justice and or the ATF and does pass along comment or the White House. And we will post a link to that on our socials. So if you follow us on Sorry Not Sorry Pod, you will find us with links to that comment page. We need to make sure this happens. It's for your safety, for my safety. The idea that you trying to do the best thing for students 
by making sure you teach them well and tell them honestly how they're doing should put you at risk because we as a country have listened to the wrong people. We've listened to the liars and have allowed this to spread. And again, this isn't who we've always been as a country. It's called a 20-year problem, a 25-year problem. Is, is, is unfathomable to me. But man, you're my friend and you shouldn't feel that way, but I understand why you do. Yeah. And almost every educator I know does feel this way. I don't know many educators who think campus carry is a good idea. Letting guns onto campus is a good idea. It's not about the educators. We don't want this. The students primarily don't want this. It's politicians who want this, and we can fix that. But I do want to go back to the um, the regulation that President Biden's ATF just proposed, because I think an important thing about this that people may not realize, when you hear about the difficulties in gun violence prevention, part of it is that the Congress right now is so divided that the minority can in fact run the Senate. They can prevent stuff from happening. This proposal, this regulation change is not legislation. It's a regulation change and it doesn't have to go through Congress. It's really important that people reach out to the ATF in the public process on this because it's not going to get a vote. It's not something that goes through a law. It's just a change in regulation. You have 90 days and then there's still an additional process of vetting that needs to go on. It's intentionally hard to pass a rule change like this, but it's also intentionally hard to undo a rule change like this. So you're 100% right. This is not going to be through congressional action. In spite of the fact that the majority of Americans want this, like north of 80% of Americans, it's more popular than having a slice of apple pie in America wanting this. We have legislators who refuse to act on behalf of the majority of American voters and to pass this on their own. And so the president is going to do it. He's going to get it done. And in doing so, it's for the people that we love and for our freedom, our rights to be free from gun violence. Last year, President Biden with the help of Senator Murphy in the Senate and others, put through the first substantial gun violence prevention legislation in 30 years. What's changed in America as a result of that legislation? What's different? There was the Safer Communities Act passed just over a year ago. And that act does several things. Number one, enhance background checks on people under 21. And that is, in fact, working. We now have the data to show. I don't have the exact number but a substantial number of young people through this expanded background check have been prevented from buying a weapon. You now have data to show for the first time in the past couple of months, the homicide rate related to gun violence is starting to bend down. It's finally declining, okay? And that is no doubt related to this legislation because it's not just about the enhanced background checks. It has measures to cut down on straw purchases gun trafficking. And for those who don't know what a straw purchase is, it's when you are a prohibited purchaser of a gun. And so you send someone else in to buy the gun for you. Which is how the Columbine shooters, for example, got their guns. It is how the Columbine shooters got their guns. There's a lot of domestic abusers who get their guns that way because they can't any longer get their gun. They send in the people that they are abusing 
to get the gun for them. So you went to these gun shows? Yeah. This was so, in Florida? So, so we're in Tampa, and this is what's called a straw purchase. Um, this person is probably prohibited from buying a firearm, so he's got this woman doing it for him. Um, at the time of this first picture, they've already agreed about the gun, and the retailer is on the phone to the Justice Department to find out if it's okay for her to buy a gun. Well, he kind of stands around and watches. This is the gun that supposedly she is buying. It's an SKS rifle, it's got a bayonet, it's got a 30-round magazine, and she's representing herself as the purchaser of this gun. She hands over the money, she signs the paperwork, the gun goes to him. So the stuff that was done there, the additional funding for mental health, while this bill, it's what I called a year ago, necessary but not sufficient, what it did do is having an effect, okay? There is no question. We are starting to see a change in the data. And Ben, you know this. I've always said for me, success is three things. Lowering the gun violence death rate. Looks like maybe that's starting. Lowering the instances of gun violence and lowering the severity of gun violence injuries when gun violence happens. That to me is success. You never hear me say we're going to stop gun violence. I get it. I understand where we are as a country, but I want to lower the risk. That should not be partisan, right? That shouldn't be a partisan problem. Nobody fires a gun with a Democratic bullet or a Republican bullet in it. It's not a partisan problem, and it affects every community in this country, every political orientation, every sexual orientation, every gender, every race, every single demographic is affected by this. It should be something that should be so easy to get behind, and yet it's not. And I wonder a little bit about that, because we do see right now the Republican Party and the American right is presenting itself as the party of protecting children. Did the Republican Party protect your children? Nope, not at all. And in fact, had my daughter lived, I can tell you she would be fighting against this Republican Party that would be trying to get inside her body, that would be telling her what she can or can't learn. My daughter had the greatest bullshit detector of anybody alive. She really did. And I remember when the former guy was running for president and she'd seen me watching the TV and she'd just walk down and start screaming at the TV like, America, what is wrong with you? Can't you see this guy is lying to you? I mean, she got it. She understood it. And she wasn't even 14. My daughter protecting her meant keeping her alive, not telling her what she could read not telling her who she could love, not telling her where she could go, keeping her alive. And so, no, the Republican Party not only failed, they continue to fail because they are not trying to protect our children. They are trying to protect their power and their hold on a certain type of power that is not what young people today want. It's not. And man, I hope that young people vote. You know, we've seen slight increases, but still the youngest generation turns out at 25-ish percent. If we get that to 35% or 45%, it's insurmountable for these forces who don't represent 
the American people, right? For the gun lobby, for the abortion extremists, for the people who think drag queens are the biggest threat to America or that trans athletes are somehow the most important issue facing women in America today, right? Just 10 or 15 more percent of that generation fundamentally changes our nation for the better. I got to challenge you, though. I agree with you. They need to show up and they need to vote. But you know what? Every time I hear an old dude like us say, we hope the young people turn out and vote, I agree. But no, our generation, we all better show up. We did this. We put them in this situation that they have to now hopefully save us from. We damn well better get off our asses and vote also. It is our responsibility. We did this. The generation that came before us did this. The generations that come after us, I hope, are better than us. It is our responsibility 100% to do this. All of us 100% vote. And I don't mean to imply otherwise, but I really do hope mainly because I want them to feel like they're part of the process as opposed to excluded from the process, not heard, because the things that they care about are not being listened to by many elected officials right now. And they have power that they are not using. And I would love for them to wield their power. And I want them not just to vote. Gosh, every example of the young person I see running for office, they're so impressive. Run for office. Yeah, do it. Get out there. You're going to win some of them. And it doesn't have to be Congress. It can be school board. You can be 18 and a senior in high school and be on your school board. You can affect what happens in your libraries and that stuff. It's a real and important thing. And also where so much governing happens. So what do you think it says about us that so many people, though, believe that the drag queens are the threat or that the library books are the threat? What does it mean for us? Can we get out of it? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that we need to come to grips with the fact there is a segment of our population that is effed up, that they don't represent decency. They don't represent a morality that suggests you have goodness in your heart. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha and as we've seen in Portland. Sure, Are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead, say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what, what, what are you saying? What are you saying? I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I'm, it. Do it. Say it. Do you want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right boys. Who would you like me to condemn? White supremacists and right boys. Proud boys, stand back and stand by. They don't represent intelligence. Honestly, I'll say it like that. I think the brilliance of the Republican legislators who debase this country with those red meat issues have concluded that the people who will vote for them are not smart, are low information, will accept dishonesty and lies as a path forward as long as they're being told that this is bad for you. And I think we need to just come to grips with the fact that 
there is a segment of America right now that is that way. Now, is it 25%, 30 35%? I don't know. But then for me, what it means is I'm actually done trying to engage that segment. I am far more interested in engaging 60 65 70% of America who still has morals, who wants to understand, who believes in this country, in its people, in democracy, and in doing the right thing. And while I accept there may be disagreements over how to do the right thing or what the right thing is, they still want to do the right thing. I'm far more focused now on that part of America. I'm done with the maggots. That's what I call MAGA. They've chosen a path and they're sticking to it. So we need to move on from them. So I want to, before we go, I want you to give us a chance to tell us a little bit about Orange Ribbons for Jamie and Pause for Love, which is some of the things that you and Jen and Jesse have been working on over the last few years. After Jamie was murdered, orange was her favorite color. And the night she was murdered, all of her dance sisters got together and made thousands of orange ribbons to give out at the funeral. And at Jamie's funeral during her eulogy, I talked about an orange ribbons movement. When I looked at it, everybody wearing the orange ribbons, not really knowing what it meant. A few weeks later, I was in a Home Depot wearing my orange ribbon in support of my daughter. And somebody asked me what it was for. When I told them, they said, did you know that's the color of the gun safety movement? And I had no idea. But that day, I went home to Jenna and I said, I want to start an orange ribbons foundation. And my first goal was to make the orange ribbon the symbol of the gun safety movement, which we've done. But orange ribbons for Jamie is about focusing on things that are important to Jamie in life, as well as on educating about why her life was cut short. Some of the things that we've done for years now is dedicate to causes that Jamie would have thought of as important. So we donate to World Central Kitchen. I'm so inspired by the work they do. To the Humane Society to dance scholarships. But we've also started our own college scholarship program, which is a little different than most. It's for kids of all abilities. So we don't just give money to kids who are going for a traditional college education. By the way, everyone who gets a scholarship from us needs to have a lot of community service hours because Jamie did. And that matters to my wife and I. But we also have a bucket of scholarships available to kids with differing abilities. Many call them special needs. My wife and I call them differing abilities because often there's no real scholarship money available for those kids who want to go post high school education. And for those kids, the cost of raising those kids is far more expensive because of all the medical necessities. And so I'm very proud of the college scholarship program that we've initiated. I will say my daughter, Emma, was one of the first recipients of one of those scholarships. And she today started her senior year of college. And that owes a lot to you and Jen and Jesse and Jamie for that. And we'll always be grateful for that. We have a committee that we've designated that does the selection. And you may or may not remember this. When I found out Emma was selected and that it was your daughter, my wife will tell you I cried like a baby because I had no idea that it was exactly why we started the scholarship. And I'm just so proud of our ability to keep doing this every single year. We used to only do 14 kids a year because Jamie was 14. 
But we had such an abundance of great potential students this year that we've raised it to 20. But the other thing that we're doing that I really think is going to become our signature cause is Paul's of Love. And being that you do know my family personally, you know how much my dogs mean to us. And when Jamie was killed, one of my dogs was only four months old. And I kid you not, that dog saved my family. Last year, driving home from the criminal trial one day, my wife said, I don't want to just keep giving away money to other entities. I want us to have our own unique signature thing. And over the course of that drive, we came up with Paws of Love. We're giving away companion puppies to families affected by gun violence, along with every need for the first year, whether it's food, medical, grooming, toys, crate, all of it. I think that's amazing. And anyone who has spent time with a dog in a moment of crisis knows just how valuable that is and the service that you're providing. And that's one of the most hopeful things I've seen in the last five years out of the gun violence prevention movement. So let me ask you this. What gives you hope? Friends like you. I have met so many amazing people since my daughter was killed who I didn't know. People who, whether they're on just the everyday streets across America or in politics or in entertainment or media or sports who they're just good people, hearts and minds, just like me, who just want to do the right thing and who fight every day to do something about the issue of gun violence, even though they haven't been directly impacted because a, they love their kids and parents and cousins and friends and they want to just help stop the next one and to every single person who's joined me in this fight who i've gotten lucky enough to call a good friend you give me hope well fred you give me hope i know you give Alyssa hope and we're so glad that you've been back to the podcast i think you're probably our most frequent guest and we're so glad to have you i love you both we love you too A shooting at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill earlier this week left one professor dead and a community reeling, especially students on and around campus. Zhu Yan, an associate professor in the Department of Applied Physical Sciences, was shot on Monday afternoon. A campus lockdown lasted three hours, alarming students and staff who barricaded themselves for safety. Police say Yan was an advisor to the alleged gunman who was a graduate student. The school's paper, The Daily Tar Heel, published a front page that went viral, showing text messages sent between friends, family, and loved ones throughout the traumatic event. The American right at present is trying to define itself as the protectors of children. They've attacked drag performers, saying they corrupt children. They've attacked librarians, saying they bring in books that are harmful to children. They've attacked teachers, saying we teach ideas that are harmful to children. While none of those harms are real, gun violence is. Children have to live with the fear that when they go to school, they will not come home, and so do parents. You cannot claim to be the party that cares about children when you do absolutely nothing to protect them from this actual harm. Gun violence isn't partisan. Bullets don't kill kids from one political party only. This should be something we can all get behind, the efforts to protect against the gun violence epidemic in this country. If you're a member of the party who refuses to do so, 
you're not a member of the party that's interested in taking care of kids. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.